The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. Well, as I was thinking about Jesus as a teacher this week, I couldn't help but start thinking about some of the teachers I had in school growing up, and I couldn't help but ask myself the question, try to think about teachers and and what makes a good teacher, what makes a bad teacher, but we're a positive bunch here, so we'll keep it to what makes a good teacher. So, uh, and what were some of the things that you said about your favorite teacher? Why was that teacher your favorite? What made that teacher good in in one sentence? Engaging, okay. Demanded excellence, okay, good one. Yes? Went beyond the norm. norm. Yep, I had a couple of those. Invested time in you. Yeah. Outside of class. Good. Used to give you Cokes. Yeah, that's... uh, Yeah, Jesus did that too, actually. (laughs) It was water originally, but... A Pepsi, I mean. Turn the Pepsi into Coke. It was the lesser-known miracle. It was the, uh, the wedding at uh, Greece. New York. Yes. Thank you. Get us back on track. Ah, your favorite teacher could see what you wouldn't show to other people in you. Yeah. What else makes a great teacher? A sense of humor? Yeah. yeah. Told you music was everywhere. So this was a, a math teacher or a... <laughs> No, it's yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting how certain teachers can help you see their subject area in places where you normally wouldn't see it. Some of the things that I came up with are similar to what you had said. Good teachers, I think, treat us all as capable of learning, even those of us who are not, quote-unquote, gifted, right? They make us believe of ourselves that we're capable of more than we would have thought otherwise. And the flip side of that coin is that a good teacher will make us work even if we think we are, quote-unquote, gifted, right? One of my favorite teachers was my sophomore year honors English teacher, Mr. Reese. He liked to give C's to honors English students in the first quarter because he used the bell curve and said a C is average, and you have done average work for honors English. My mom still hates that guy. (laughs) My son does not get C's. Well, guess what? (laughs) He did that time, but not the next quarter, because I worked hard. (laughs) They help us see a topic from a new angle, find a different way to appreciate it. 
And in some cases, that can even alter the direction of your life. Anybody have a teacher that just brought a subject alive so much that it changed you, made you go in a different direction? Yeah, I see some nodding, a lot of hands raising. Yeah. And I think the most important thing about a good teacher is that, that he or she will help you understand the why, not just the what, right? I think one of the reasons that I didn't particularly like math growing up was that I never had a math teacher who could or would, was interested in helping me understand the why, only the what, sometimes the how. Just carry the one. Well, how come? Just trust us. Carry the one. You'll get the answer right. I got the answer right, but I was, uh, I'm still not sure I understand why you carry the one. No, really, I do know that. I'll tell you after the sermon. Well, everybody has their own version of, of uh, Mr. Reese, my favorite teacher growing up. Um, but today we want to talk about one teacher in particular, and his name is Mr. Jesus. <laughs> I said that because now it can only go uphill from there. <laughs> but no, we're going to be looking at Jesus for the next three weeks and different aspects of his ministry each week. And it will culminate with uh, the final Sunday of the Christian calendar's year, which is Christ the King Sunday. Um, next week is Christ the Prophet. And uh, this week is Christ the Teacher. And so we're not only going to look at some of the what that Jesus taught, but also the how he taught and some of the why. You know, and when we, when we teach our, uh, our Journey Together membership course, which a lot of you have taken, we have a five- or six-week class that we teach uh, for anybody who's interested in becoming a member at Artisan. It's called Journey Together. And during that course, there's a, there's a whole little segment about Jesus as a teacher. And we talk about a number of different ways that, that Jesus taught. And one of the things that we say about the way Jesus taught is that he, it was embodied teaching, right? Meaning that Jesus literally put a body, a human body, on the spiritual realm. And the lessons that he taught about God came from the fact that he was God in human form. It's also one of the, thing, one of the things that it means when you read in, in the Gospel of John, in that first chapter where it's talking about the Word dwelling with God and being God. In, in verse 14 it says, The Word, capital W, became flesh and lived among us. Now we could, there's a whole subset of meaning there that comes with the Greek understanding of the word logos, which means word, um, and what that, that is kind of like the force for them in some ways. But, um, but for us today, the word, the lesson became human and lived among us. And that's what we mean when we, when we use the word incarnation. Incarnation literally means you know, being made into flesh or into a body. And so when we talk about the incarnation theologically, it's, it's the God's descent to the created order, God becoming human. Um, but when we say that his teaching was incarnational, 
We're not just talking about a theological principle. We're talking about the fact that these lessons, these spiritual realities were embodied. And one of the ways that Jesus embodied spiritual truth, and all of you are familiar with this, is with the use of parables. And uh, he taught about the kingdom of God using parables, essentially analogies. And often, but not always, this would take the form, Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is like, and what would he say? You know, there's any number of things that he's, a mustard seed, sure, or, uh, you know, any, there's, there's bunches of them. Which is, of course, a really, uh, you know, a really great way to help somebody understand something. You have something that's complicated, and you say, well, I can't really get to the, explain this complicated thing to you, but it's sort of like something else that you can understand really easily. Um, I've been, some of you know, been getting into electronics lately. Um, not because I'm a nerd, because I'm really, I'm very a cool guy, but um, <laughs> I don't like the shaking of the head when I say that, guys. That's not nice. But <laughs> electronics, because I build guitar pedals to make rock and roll sounds, okay? So it's cool. Um, but when you're talking about the flow of electricity, a very common analogy that's used is like water flowing through something. And that breaks down eventually, but, um, you know, we can all picture water flowing through a funnel and into a bottle and then filling up the bottle and then overflowing and then, you know, coming to a stopping point or whatever, you know. So very often when somebody's trying to explain electronics to you, um, they will compare it to water. It's a parable, right? So Jesus was explaining the kingdom of God by saying that it was like something else. Uh, and by the way, if you read the parables in Matthew's gospel, the, the phrase instead of kingdom of God would be kingdom of heaven. And it's the same thing. You see the same analogies made. In one gospel it says the kingdom of God is like, and then in Matthew's gospel it says the kingdom of heaven is like. And um, a couple reasons for that, but one of the biggest reasons is probably that Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience that would, been, would have been less comfortable with the use of the word, the name God. So he said the kingdom of heaven. But it's the same thing. Now, sometimes in the case of these parables, the passing of the centuries has meant that the simpler thing that's supposed to make it easier to understand some big spiritual truth doesn't make any sense to us either. You know, um, oil lamps or, or wine skins or Hebrew wedding banquet traditions, you know, these are not things that are immediately obvious to us, and so they don't quite make sense. And you're like, Jesus is telling me about something by explaining it with something that's supposed to be simpler but I have no idea what that means. Um, that happens from time to time, and so it requires a little bit of work to figure that out. But at the time, that wouldn't have been the case. So the, the use of parables as a, as a teaching method, as a didactic method, um, is a very practical thing for Jesus to have done. So embodied teaching and the use of parables to explain what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was like and then there's one particular teaching method of Jesus's that I, I want to hone in on a little bit more. And this is one of my favorite things that Jesus does. You remember when he says this? He says, you have heard that it was said. And then he would list uh, a rule or a law. And then he would say, but I say to you. And then he would spin it and change it. And I think that's another great teaching method to take something that people think they know and think that they have mastered and twist it. That's the Mr. Reese technique. (laughs) 
and say, you guys think, you Pharisees think you're honor students when it comes to holy living or understanding the law or the purposes of God, but guess what? You get a C (laughs) or a D or an F. Let me give you a few examples of this. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So if we look at Matthew chapter 5, which uh, you can find on page uh, 786 in the red Bibles that are underneath your chairs if you'd like to follow along. It's okay just to listen too, but I think it'll be on the screen um, in this case. But sometimes you like to read it out of the Bible. I like to do that. Seems more tangible that way to me, but whatever works for you. Look at chapter 5, starting with verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder. One of the Ten Commandments, even the dumbest Hebrew legal scholar would have understood this, right? And whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And he goes on to say, if you insult a brother or sister, if you call your brother a fool, you're going to be in danger of hellfire. So it's a good thing that none of us ever gets angry, right? (laughs) How many people drove to, to church this morning without getting angry even one time? Be honest, raise your hand if you did. I did. Wait, wait, actually, no, I didn't, because some idiot turned right into, the, into that, thing, that, that tattoo shop down there, or whatever it is, on Clinton Avenue, and didn't use his turn signal. Man. Oops. <laughs> wow. Okay, let's go on. The next one should be guaranteed to be better. Uh, let's go to verse 27. You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. Another one of the Ten Commandments. Even the dumbest legal scholar of the Jewish religious system would have understood that one. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he gives some advice that we probably don't really want to even bother reading. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin... Pluck it out. Um, and so this, in this cultural context, it probably made more sense for Jesus to address this to men. But I'm going to address it to all of you. <laughs> because women are capable of this sin as well. So stopping short of adultery apparently is not enough. If you look at another person with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. How many people drove to church this morning (laughs) and made it the whole way without... (laughs) (laughs) That guy didn't use his turn signal, but man. (laughs) That's what Tracy said. (laughs) I'm like, I'm right here. <laughs> We'd better move on. 
Uh, Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this was not one of the Ten Commandments, but it was part of the Mosaic Law. That if an eye was damaged by somebody, that person's eye would also be damaged by the other person. And they had a very complicated way of working this out. You know, it wasn't just like, if you hurt my daughter, I'm going to hurt you. No. If you hurt my daughter, I'm going to hurt your daughter. It was very specific and clear that whatever wrong was done to someone should be equalized as precisely as possible to the offender so that no one would have a grievance. So it worked. It actually worked out. It was not pleasant. I wouldn't recommend it as a, a penal system now, but it prevented conflict because it removed the inequality that would happen when someone harmed another. On paper, anyway. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And it goes on like this. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This is teaching that not only goes against the legal system that was in place for a reason, we may not agree with it, but it was in place for a reason to keep things equal. Not only does it turn that on its head, but it also goes against our deepest human instinct, doesn't it? You know, I've been in a couple bar fights in my day. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) I managed, I realized this much later in life that I had managed to make it through life without um, uh, getting the stuffing beaten out of me because I was tall, (laughs) right? And I don't know if it's not like some deep base animalistic instinct (laughs) that makes you think, oh, that person's tall. I better not mess with him. I was pretty much, and am pretty much, the biggest wuss you could possibly encounter. But nobody really wanted to mess with me because I was tall, even even though I was uh, rather skinny before I married such a good cook. Um, (laughs) So no, I haven't been in a whole lot of bar fights. But the one time that somebody did hit me, I was like, the switch went off, right? And I was raised in the church my whole life. I'd probably heard this verse 500 times by that point, but I did not turn the other cheek, right? I had braces, and he got his hands all cut up on my braces. I still love that. It makes me happy. Um, (laughs) But that, that response to a wrong being done to us is, is the complete opposite of what our first instinct is to do. Someone strikes me on the cheek, I'm going to strike him on the other cheek. 
right? That's not what Jesus says to do. And so, one thing you may have noticed as we've looked at these, and the, the, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, I, I skipped like half of it. It just, you have heard it said, but I say to you, again and again and again, making everything less simple and more difficult. But one of the things you may have noticed is that, that Jesus is setting up two amazing, powerful realities Simultaneously, Jesus is setting up a system of applied religion, in other words, living out our faith, that if everybody in the world were to follow it, would make the world a wonderful place to live in. Would it not? The problem is that as soon as somebody cheats on the rules, everything gets messed up. But... He is setting up a system where if we just simply followed his teaching, every single one of us, we would live in peace and harmony with one another all of our days. That's the first thing he's doing. The second thing he's doing is he's setting the bar so impossibly high that there is no way we will ever reach it. As if the bar wasn't high enough with 613 specific laws in the Mosaic system, Jesus is saying, okay, you Pharisees are proud of yourselves because you're all honor students when it comes to following these laws. You've got them memorized backwards and forwards. You know exactly when and where people tend to break them, and you, you wait there for them and point it out. And you're very proud of the fact that you've never murdered anybody or you've never committed adultery or you've been so good at applying the eye for an eye rule. Guess what? Your bar is here, and God's bar is way up there. Good luck, right? You're not used to getting C's, but I'm going to give you an F. (laughs) Because what person can say that he or she has followed these principles that Jesus has laid out? Ever. None of us can say that. And sometimes I fear that we have, we have merely, <laughs> like, changed the goal. We're operating under the same delusion that the Pharisees were. We've just changed the answer at the back of the book. And we've said... Okay, well, if anger is the same thing as murder, then really all I need to ask of you is for you never to be angry, and then you'll be just right with God. Let's do it. How dumb are we? How badly could we have missed the point? Which is clearly that we have no hope of righteousness on our own, No prayer of fulfilling the law in a way that satisfies God. One of my favorite authors, Greg Boyd, calls this the impossible ethics of the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) 
So yes, I'm not, I'm not discounting that first part. Jesus is setting up a system of applied religion that we should all seek to follow. And the better we do, the better everything will be. But don't miss the point and think that he's just now changed the answer that we need to shoot for or set the bar higher so that we can just work a little harder. The impossible ethics of the Sermon on the Mount are that it's that much more painfully obvious that we are unable to make the grade on our own. And that's kind of like the whole point of all of it. Jesus says, I take that on myself and my righteousness is your righteousness if you have faith in me. I think one of Jesus' great triumphs as a teacher, and you've heard me quote this probably two or three times over the past few months, it's just been on my mind a lot, um, is the, the great commandment for those of us who really like very specific rules, directions that we can follow. You know, if, if what I just said to you didn't hit home and you still want to walk out of here and just believe that you can go through your car ride home and not get angry and not have lust in your heart and not, you know, punch somebody, really I'm going to try that if that's, if that's you because you've just given me these great specific rules. That's all I need. No more. You have to hear the, the great commandment because, um, <laughs> and it's so great that, that the guy who asked him the question was a lawyer <laughs> because a lot of times we're lawyers. We're lawyers with other people so that we can make a case against them and we're lawyers about ourselves so that we can get off the hook. Matthew 22, if you want to jump ahead to it. The Pharisees gathered together and one of them a lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, gave him an answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, I like this because it speaks to principles rather than specific behaviors. And uh, we, we may kind of like it because it's short on the hairy details. And if pressed, we could probably make a case that we're doing it. Oh, I'm just doing it in my way. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, and I love my neighbor as myself. You just don't understand the way I work that out. It's okay. I mean, <laughs> we're, like, we're like hipster moralists. You just, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> but remember, these guidelines were, were given in response to a trap question, Right? 
Jesus is not a teacher that you can trap. We all had a teacher in high school or college that we could trap, right? My chemistry teacher um, didn't realize that when these really fancy graphing calculators came out, <laughs> this is like, now listen, kids, this is pre-iPhone. Like, I'm really old here. These fancy graphing calculators would come out, and we needed formulas to do the chemistry. He didn't realize that we could just, you know, type all the formulas into the thing and just act like we're using our calculator and actually reading the stuff we were supposed to memorize, right? I know. So we could trap Mr. Uh, we'll call him Mr. P, um, pretty easily. But Jesus is not a guy you can do that to. He's not going to show up 15 minutes late so that you can leave class. He's going to know every time you don't show your work. He's going to notice every inflated word count. He can see the margins and measure them <laughs> without a ruler. He knows the difference between 12 point and 13 point and 12.8. He's always going to look up just at the second you're trying to catch your neighbor's test score answers. And if you try to, try to trick Jesus into making everything simple and clean and just tell me what the most important rule is and I'll follow it, he's just going to turn that question on its head and say, well, the most important rule is the one that all the other ones are based on. So you can try, but that's not how it's going to work. But the most important lesson of all of that is that passing the test is not the point. You can't study hard enough. You can't learn enough. You can't memorize enough. To get the score that you need. And that really is when you think about it, the entire point of our Christian faith, isn't it? That no matter what we do, no matter how clever we think we are, no matter what angle we try to find, we will fall short of God's glory and requirement of us. And I don't know why we spend so much effort trying to redraw the lines in a way that we can actually do it right. How dumb are we? Because Jesus, as we'll see in the coming weeks, is more than just a teacher. He is the source of our salvation. And it's our faith in Him and trust in Him that makes the grade, if you'll pardon the uh, expression. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for this embodiment of the spiritual lessons that we need to learn, that Jesus came and took on human form and lived a life that not only taught his followers and, by extension, us, 
the ways that we needed to live, but also demonstrated it, lived it out flawlessly, and took our punishment on himself. And so we pray that when we see the impossible ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, we would be inspired toward holiness, yes, but most importantly, we would be humbled and brought low and reminded that there is no way that we can make that grade, that we can pass that test, that we can achieve that level of righteousness. And so as we live in the tension of trying to apply our faith in the way that Jesus taught while still being conscious of the fact that we are utterly hopeless and ever in need of His grace, You would strengthen us and draw us near to each other for the support that we need. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would know Jesus and follow Him today and for all of our days. Amen. Now, I love that we uh, have a tradition here at Artisan that we take communion together every week after the Word is proclaimed in whatever form that takes. And um, our table is open to anybody who wants to live in that tension, who wants to seek to follow that impossible ethic and also throw themselves on the mercy of the court uh, and receive the grace that comes from a crucified and risen Christ. And so, um, for the rest of our time together, our table is open. You can participate in communion uh, if you'd like. Just tear a piece of the bread. You can dip it in the wine or the juice, whatever would be more appropriate for you and your family. And uh, if you prefer to wait and pray or meditate, you can do that. You don't need to line up. Um, There's no rush. But come when you sense the Lord's call. And let's continue to worship together. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.